Welcome to the Unstructured Podcast. In this episode, I talk to performance apparel design leader and former pro snowboarder, J.J. Collier. From snowboard to sewing machine to leading design for brands like Solomon, RLX by Ralph Lauren, Spider, and more, J.J. and I talk about what it takes to design high-end, high-performance gear and how to channel your passions into designing an authentic life. I'm Michelle Rose, and this is Unstructured. This episode was brought to you by Structure Society, the community for creators in art, design, and music. For almost a decade, Structure has brought together creatives from across the industrial, apparel, graphic, and sound design industries, building professional relationships, creating a platform for knowledge sharing, and raising the bar of product creation. From live events and workshops to publication and podcasting, Structure continues to evolve to build the strong creator community needed to craft our future. Find us at struktursociety.com and subscribe to our Substack at structuresociety.substack.com. But I want to start off talking about branding, self-branding. And we're today we're living in a time like never before. There's never been a time like what we're all experiencing and where each of us we, we need to look at ourselves like a brand. And this seems to be something that you've always done or have done for a long time. That's just something ever since I've I've known of you, heard of you that you've had a um, kind of a, a, a distinct identity. You have a very strong name. Um, and I want to know who is JJ Collier? What is your elevator pitch? Well, that's, um, that's a fun one. Uh, it, it, for me, it's always had to do with like being real. And I know that's a term we use a lot right now, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a trending word, but this authenticity thing for me has always been central to what I do. And that was true long before the design stuff came along. I wanted what I did with my life to matter. Um, and that's actually from a very young age, like from a very young age, I believed in the dream. Like I fell for the dream. I'm a super mega romantic. So whether that was like living vicariously through BMX magazines or mm. seeing snowboarding in a James Bond movie, when when stuff struck me, it struck hard. And I didn't just want to daydream about it. I wanted to, I wanted to do it. And so, so the elevator pitch for me is that I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a creative leader who only does work that is going to matter and, and, um, and provides real experiences for people. Otherwise it's, I don't have the time for it. Yeah. Yeah. That you've talked a lot about that authenticity and that word has been used a lot in a lot of different ways over the recent years. Uh, what does it mean to you being authentic? I mean, it means being a professional uh, first and foremost, like really, really understanding my craft. And again, whether that's sports or motorsports or certainly design, mm -hmm. um, I, I I want to be the best I possibly can be. And I'm fortunate to love what I do. And so learning all the time uh, just validates that, 
you know, you can't walk around talking about being authentic and then not be authentic. You know, like yep. if I'm going to build snowboard stuff. Obviously I can snowboard. I want to test it. If I'm doing motorsport stuff, I'm very fortunate to be able to get in a, you know, the, a proper track prepared car and go test those things, you know, or even if it's just to, to get away, like I, I'm, I still want the experiences to matter, you know, because we know we've, it's a blip we're here for not to get dark, but like, you know, take advantage of the time we have, make it, make it matter. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of my favorite things to do when talking with another creative or another designer, which I just, I love spending time talking with fellow designers and artists. And um, as I love to talk about our background and I mean, way background, you know, like, where do we come from? Um, and, you know, digging into our childhood and understanding, you know, what is our foundation? What makes us tick? What formed us? Um, and, and what inspires us? Um, you grew up in a small town in North Carolina called Banner Elk. Never heard of it until I looked it up. No. Um, what was it like for you to grow up there? Like, how did it inform you and help form who you are today? Well, it was magical. I mean, nothing short of magical for like a little kid to move from an army base where we had this life that I really enjoyed as a, you know, four or five year old, uh -huh. to all of a sudden having, you know, 20 plus acres and literally nothing to be afraid of, uh, except the stuff I made up was out in those woods, you know? And so it was very much a time of like, um, exploration and freedom and the ability to just kind of like daydream and explore and really with almost like almost in a no fear kind of environment. And I, our parents were the same way. My folks are amazing. They were so open and excited for us to have this, um, this opportunity to have like a, a low key mountain life. Um, the town happens to be like, if you've ever heard of it, you, you know, if you know it, you love it. It's kind of one of those little towns. Mm -hmm, there yeah. are ski resorts and amazing golf courses and all that. So it's actually quite a well-known destination now, some, you know, 50 years later, 45 years later, <laughs> but um, you know, it's where it all, it's really where it all started for me in terms of like imagining worlds that were bigger than the one I actually had to live in. And I only say had to live in because you know, it's hard for a daydreamer in school sitting there squirming. You just can't wait to get back outside again. Yep. And so, yeah, so it was the beginning of, of my creative life, not right away, but as, as time went on, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I could start to imagine, you know, yeah. adventures. That seems to be rarer and rarer, you know, for kids today. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I live in Oakland, California, where it's almost non-existent to be able to do something like that with, with our children. Um, and I don't know if you're able to provide that kind of experience for your kids, you know? Yeah, we've certainly tried. I mean, Boulder is, has got its own, uh, I mean, access to, to all of that, but mm. maybe not quite in the same way as having, you know, your own property and a lot fewer things around to eat you and stuff. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so did you grow up? Um, I mean, did were you involved in in you know outdoor activities as a little wee little one when you were well, there? Well, if playing if playing army and, and you know getting my kit all together so I can look exactly yeah. proper Vietnam era um uh, together counts as outdoor yeah. activities, then yeah. I mean that's definitely was our like our main thing. You know, my yeah. dad's a former uh, Green Beret and a you know a, a, a an army a retired army officer and so I was certainly inspired by his life and 
we had these woods. And so, yeah, for me and my friends running around, there was a lot, a lot of that stuff. And it's so funny because funny to me, you know, military reference is such a big deal in my life now professionally that, that being able to go back and reference the stuff that I literally of my dad's, like my old, my original, his original Alice pack and, and his original helmets and web gear and, and fatigues. I mean, that stuff's still a reference for me. It's just hilarious to be holding those same things in my hands 45 years later. Yeah. That's why you use the term kit all the time. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I didn't get it from him. I picked that up elsewhere, but I mean, get, yeah, just that's, those references are central for me. Yeah. 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 That's, but you know, I don't, I mean, I know what people do talk about kit. It's just, I've heard it the most from you, especially as a designer. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. makes sense to me, yeah. you know, thinking about that because that's what you're thinking about is the whole package, how it all works together. What do you need to yeah. do the thing you're trying, you're trying to accomplish. What was it like then in, I mean, in particularly, I want to go into the eighties. What was it like in Banner Elk? What was the kid scene, the teen scene? What was, what was going on there? I'm thinking about youth culture. Oh boy. So it's like the Christmas tree capital of the world is Avery County um, where I grew up, you know, so it's quiet, it's rural, sweet people, low, super low key. So in the eighties, um, I, I always tell this story about how I was, you know, kind of looking at like a Sears catalog for probably my seventh grade birthday or something. I'm uh-huh. like compound bow or BMX bike. You know, <laughs> I love both still, but what did like, you choose? I, what did I you happened choose? to choose. Well, there was some, there was a, 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 a place on my, on our property, like up on where we live, where I was like, Oh, that could easily be a BMX jump. So I, I, I went into BMX. Mm -hmm. BMX led to skateboarding, skateboarding led to snowboarding. And like, so it was all, and that was also to the beginning, like Michelle of like the vicarious California, like, okay, I'm in this little town in North Carolina, but all this West coast stuff appeals to me. Yeah. And so, you know, here we are, these little nerds running around with our spiky hair and jams and Mm -hmm. dreaming of, of, you know, being in, you know, yeah. Laguna Beach. And instead we were like, yeah, in this one stoplight town. Yeah. But, well, where did you hear about it? Like, how did it, how did all of that California, the, or that, that sport uh, culture, like, how did it reach you? How did you become, how did you know about it? I mean, literally we just started, I, like I always do. I just started digging into it, you know, like when I got my BMX bike, it's like, okay, we, I don't know where we were getting magazines at the time, but BMX action magazine, was the initial unlock. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing, you know, and BMX was on fire. It was coming up 83, 80. It had been up happening before, but right around there, 82, 83, boom. I, I caught it right as it was happening. In fact, the same was true for, for snowboarding too, you know, later. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to dig into that too as well. But I mean, what I, one of the things I love about digging into our youth culture, because we're similar age and um, same type of thing, but I grew up in California. And so, yeah, BMX bikes were the thing. All the boys had them. So some of the girls wanted them, um, roller skating, skateboarding, any of that stuff. What didn't come up for us, obviously, was a lot of snowboarding, unless right. you lived north, because we were Bay Area and Southern Cal. And so it was very street sports. Um, yeah. But I love to hear about how other people across the country heard about it you know the magazines the tv shows the music maybe not so much when we're young um but all the different ways that uh, people became aware of those types of culture you know how was it in your did you have other friends and other people um 
at in Banner Elk that were getting into that as well that you could hang out with and no, it, no. In fact, it's so funny. It's like back to the, you know, when I, when I told you I was, I'm in the woods and it was early dreaming later on, nothing shaped my life more than James Bond movies. <laughs> like awesome. nothing, nothing. I can see um, that. Yeah. I can see that so, in your work. Absolutely. Well, so, I mean, it's in the work, it's in the cars, it's in the, yeah. the mountains and destinations and like, oh my God, no, like nothing triggered me more than Bond. I was like, oh, that looks pretty good. Yeah. Um, and so it was a view to a kill I should know the year. I think it's probably 82 or something. Mm, yes. Uh, the opening scene, Bond's being chased by some bad guys. The snowmobile blows up and the yes. skid lands in the snow next to him and he puts it on his feet and takes off. And I've never, I mean, even as much as I loved BMX and 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 all my other little passions, nothing has triggered me like that scene where I was like, oh my God. I mean, it just crashed my hard drive. I, I, I was <laughs> like, I will do that and I think I'll be good. Yeah. Yes. So it's like, <laughs> uh, oh man. So, so, awesome. so you have to answer then. Okay. Probably of course, but who's your favorite bond actor? Oh God. That's yeah. I mean, it's, I'm sorry, but it's, it's Daniel Craig. I mean, he's just, he just, he reinvented the genre in such an amazing way. Awesome. But the fact is I love them all. Ask me, you know, well, I don't know if I love them all. Um, I certainly the Bond era for me was more of a Roger Moore thing. It was late seventies, yeah. early eighties. So right. that's when I was really like, you know, getting, getting deeply influenced. Um, and I think they were what happened to be on cable at the time too. We didn't, you yeah. know, you didn't need to see the Sean Connery stuff cause it wasn't, you know, HBO wasn't playing it. Yeah. You had to dig year, back you know? into that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but it was just so, it was so influential. And then right around that time, Burton was, um, well, snowboarding was starting to get covered a little bit in Transworld skateboarding. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And then I, but I think before that era, Bert might've even run some early ads in the BMX magazines, which of course was genius. And, um, and so, yeah, so it just started to land. Then from that point, when did you first get on a board and try well, We had, I mean, I think, I think certainly Bond was the first introduction to it, um, and then a TV show did a quick thing on it, but that was a few years later. Mm -hmm. But it, then there were snurfers. So before there were snowboards, there were snurfers. And so we were able to get some like knockoff snurfers from a local hardware store. I still have mine. Made oh. made bindings out of cut up BMX tubes because standing on them was just a death wish. Um, so I had to secure my feet, you know, and um, that was the first time we had anything strapped to our feet. And then it was November 86 that I my brother Dave and I got our first boards and nice. and went riding at Beach Mountain. And then it, it just very shortly thereafter, we were like, okay, we're, we know how to do this. Mm. Yeah. And, it was amazing. and how you were hooked, right? No. A hundred percent. Even with snowblowers and ice and, and moguls and all of the stuff to contend with in East coast skiing. I am, um, I am so grateful to Beach Mountain. I can't even tell you. <laughs> what did you if they mean? hadn't, if they hadn't allowed it, I mean, if they hadn't allowed it, I would have been toast. It would have been all right. backcountry. The other mountains didn't allow it. Right. Beach was like totally open to it. They embraced us and it was totally awesome. I remember that because I didn't grow up doing snow sports, um, but I knew about it and I knew about the snurfers and they were in some of my magazines and whatnot. But um, I knew that there was a lot of the fight going on mm -hmm. of wanting to keep them out. And, you know, and I've interviewed um, and, and and part of the structure community, uh, Trent Bush, who was one of the yeah, twist great. founders and, you know, Scott Klum, who was with Sims and whatnot. Some of those guys. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, Scott, I, sorry, real quick, Michelle, Scott's yeah. in the magazine. Magazine. Okay. Like my friend, 
brought me some magazines back from Myrtle Beach. You know, she's so sweet. Uh, Melanie, I always, I'm like, Melanie, you'll never know what those magazines meant to me. Oh, and I, nice. I, uh, I found them at home recently and I saw Scott in there and I tore out his ad and sent it to him. Cause it oh, was nice. I never forgot what a rad shot it was, you know? So yeah. Yeah. And here I am daydreaming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's great. And it's just the, the people, I mean, for me to like, to, to see that culture happen and then grow and evolve and, and the art and culture and creativity and design that has come out of that, you know, over the last 30, 40 years is amazing. And yeah. I, I, it, I think it needs, um, it, it will, it, it'll get more of its due, but I do think more of that history needs to be documented. They're um, starting to, they're starting to do a pretty great job. Yeah. yeah. Like the and, recent ride documentary and all that was a nice, nice oh, that. retrospective. Yeah. It's cool. Great. 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 People. Um, yeah, I, I just think it has so much to do with like, it's, it's a, it's a very important piece of, our cultural history. And it's a very strong piece of, of Gen X, um, you know, which we are not particularly good at tooting our own horn and, mm. and putting it out there. And so that's starting to happen a bit more. We celebrate, we keep things kind of to ourselves and to our, our, our tribes and our, our people. Um, yeah. And so I love to pull that out and share that a lot more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was looking at, um, another interview that you had done and some of the things that I didn't know yet about you, but you then you'd been snowboarding for a while and you got your father to take you to Vermont for the U S open. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you competed and won. Yeah. I won. I won the junior moguls. So in, what in 1988, yeah. how did you get your dad to take you there? And oh, I don't know. You know, we, we just, it was just such a stroke of genius. We have family in the Northeast. It was like, you know, we really, really, I don't know what, I don't remember Dave and I like working on our parents too hard about this, but yeah, but we got him to drive 17 hours to Vermont wow. in March and we competed and both did quite well, but yeah, but I wound up winning the junior moguls. And I think I might've had one of the highest, I think I might've had the highest score for the pros too. I don't want to, I, I was, it was an unbelievable experience where yeah. I'm this 135 pound, 16 year old. And I've learned how to, I, what, what did it was I could spin, I could do a 360. And I mm -hmm. don't know if anyone was doing how many people were really spinning, like really spinning. Mm -hmm. And so, and the fact that I could spin this heavy giant board that was too big for me, I don't know, but it, that's what, that's what cinched it. <laughs> Those opportunities of the early days, you know, when you're just doing your thing, you know, at home in your own backyard or whatnot, and then you go out and you do what you do and you find out that you're doing pretty good. <laughs> well, and, and to be, to be a little bit more open about it for a moment, it was like, I could draw and I could daydream. And that was sort of like, you know, I was an active kid, but I was too small to really be a BMX racer. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't a natural skateboarder. I loved it. Like, you know, I'd drop in on a vert ramp and whatever later on, but like snowboarding was the first thing where I was like, <clears throat> wasn't like the last pick for, you know, kickball, like, or whatever it had yeah. been my whole life where I was like, just too small to be like, you know, so when you find something like this, whether it's snowboarding or now like design work and I'm, and you're good at it and you love it, it's like nothing was going to, like, I was set, I was just going to be as good as I possibly could be. Cause it was the first thing that had ever really unlocked my like persona for me in a way that uh, where I really, really felt genuinely good. Um, 
about myself. Not that I felt bad about myself, but you know, preteen teenager, yeah. you're like looking for identity and it's rough. find it uh, snowboarding. Holy moly. Thank it's you. It's rough. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we were talking about that, about the kind of the last pick thing where, was that something that you struggled with a little bit? I mean, I think we all struggle with it to a degree um, and we don't talk about it or we all have that fear that we're going yeah. to be that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it was real. I mean, I think it was, it's not something I dwelled on too much. In fact, I've noticed, I noticed it more later when I was like, oh yeah, wait a minute. I was kind of like, I, 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 it never bothered me too much because I'm my own little group of friends and we were doing our thing and that was great. But yeah. it's so funny in retrospect, how acutely aware you are of even like elementary school social hierarchies. Yeah. And so, and, and it's, it's something I've been cognizant of as a, as a parent too, um, right. to where it's like, okay, just pay attention to what's going on, you know, so that you're aware of how people feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember it really bothering me very much. I just noticed it later. I guess I noticed it when I found that thing that, that sort of made me feel like I was set apart from the crowd in a, in a, in a way that um, was nice. Like, yeah. you know, I didn't have to, no one had to be put down for me to feel better. I just knew that I had something that was a little bit special and it felt, you know, it felt good. Yeah. It feels nice when you can find that thing. I mean, so many of us creative artists, creatives, musicians, you know, uh, we all feel some sort of way of, I don't know, for some people, there's an outcast feeling. I didn't necessarily feel like an outcast, um, but I always felt a little, I was always the artist myself personally. And um, I always felt a little odd, a little different, like I was trying to, and we moved a lot. So I always had to try to kind of refit in and I always had friends, but uh, it became apparent to me, you know, over time that that I often felt out of place. And that was the very thing that made me creative and artistic. And yeah. that is the thing that I'm seeing with every artist I ever talked to is that piece that made them feel a little bit left out or different or odd is the thing that also really helped them be that unique piece of fi- and, and finding that unique talent or that you that thing that you bond to um is part of that important life path yeah. and maybe I, I think i think about parents like driving 17 hours in march to bring their kids to something like this they must have seen something or had some positive feeling of like yeah let's do this there's I a reason so. i mean there was no hockey game every thursday night or whatever to see if the kid had it or not i dave and i talked my dad into taking us <laughs> i don't know if he'd been to the mountain to see us ride but like you know because it's kind of hard to observe snowboarding in any meaningful way yeah. but but like yeah yeah he it was i and he, he was you know he couldn't be more thrilled with the outcome we both Dave and I both had a good weekend I came away with that first place but he you know it 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 opened doors for us it unlocked things for my brother and I in a way that he couldn't have possibly anticipated driving us up there yeah now so how did that lead into going pro um it well it, it just I I mean try try to imagine this like before Stratton I'm reading the magazines and dreaming of living you know at at riding at Donner Ski Ranch or, top, you know, wherever, the magical places out West. Yep. Come back from the US Open sponsored by Burton and with Oakley on the side. Like, give me a break. Right. I didn't bring Kleenex in here. I usually joke about this because I'm like welling up thinking about the impossibility of it compared to my dreams at the time. Yeah. Like, I thought I might go up there and do pretty well. I didn't think I was going to get offered 
uh, Burton sponsorship while I was there. And that's, that's what happened. So I came back with my trophy. I'm sponsored going into my senior year of high school. You know, I've got my mullet. It just looks epic. Like everything (laughs) is clicking, you know, and we need a photo of that. Oh, I've got them. Um, But no, but so it was like this, it was just an impossible dream. It was like, I can't believe this is happening. And then it continued to happen because I moved out West and still, you know, still really could ride against everybody. Yeah. So it was cool. And you were saying, I mean, I've heard you talk about um, that you were in that second wave of of sponsored yeah. riders because you know as a as as any new sport like this and we don't see a lot of new sports come out so this is a big deal snowboarding was a huge yeah. deal yeah. and when it first comes out it's a renegade kind of like oh no one wants to take it seriously want to kick everybody off the mountain um uh, but then you start having these events and sponsorships and the first wave is always kind of the um you know going through with the machete carving a path the second mm-hmm. wave has another experience and you get plenty of other waves after that yeah. um talk about your wave well the first wave was like the guys who were in the magazines you know like this yeah. was terry terry kidwell really og tahoe rider legend um laid down the initial tracks like that were just unreal like and then you know similar timeline craig kelly mm-hmm. sean palmer like these early names who were just our legend you know legends still legends yeah. Right. Um, and then there was this, you know, then, then, you know, from 88, 89 forward, the 16, 17 year old guys were started to come up me and Jeff Brushy and Todd Richards and like, you know, a bunch of these other names that are like really, you know, had good careers in it and were really part of what I guess I would consider the second wave. Yeah. So we were competing against Sean and, and Craig Kelly and like those guys we were all in the same contest, but they were just old enough that I feel like they were the ones who really, really laid it down the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And I could, I mean, I'm sorry, I could list 40 other names, but you, you get the, you get the gist. We were like the, just the second round of young guys coming up. But what was that like for you guys in terms of like, well, the grand scheme of things. So I'm thinking about people listening now and some people are going to know this history. Some people are going to be younger and they want to know a little bit about, you know, like, um, what were you, I mean, what was it like to be sponsored? How often were you, what were you doing? Who was sponsoring you? What, it was just, what was just, it? We were just coming up, you know, I, I graduated from high school, moved to Breckenridge, did, was, I was just doing the amateur tour, you know, there was the, the, the pro riders and then the amateur riders. And we would, you know, sometimes Burton team like Noah Brandon and Jason Ford and the guys would like Jimmy Scott would like, you know, conveniently show up in Breckenridge. And of Mm -hmm. course we were like, dude, you can stay as long as you want. You know, we're getting to ride with the pro team, you know? Yeah. And so, and from that epic coaching and friendships and all that. um, But so it was just the, it was my amateur years. I was trying to win contests. And so I won contests when I could, you know, and racing and half pipe, like had a couple of great amateur seasons in a row. One, one at overall uh, 90, 90 and 91. This is ancient history, but turned pro in 92 to see if I could, you know, hang with the big boys and managed to, uh, managed to, managed to do pretty well. Yeah. And then you were working with, um, uh, like the brands on, you know, not just sponsorship, but on gear. Well, later, not until much later. Really? That didn't come in until... Oh, no, this really, that really changed. I mean, there was certainly rider feedback, of course, but Uh to the extent that it it seems to happen now... Right. It was just getting started. Like, you know, Craig was a master board shaper working with Paul Wren at Burton and doing like incredible stuff. And I'm going to leave names out. I don't mean to, but it's like, but so certainly there was, there was rider feedback, but on apparel, I don't know if it was as much 
as it was on hard goods, where it was like, you know, they were learning things every day about bindings and boards and flex and side cut and all the stuff. But on apparel, it was kind of like, it was very much, no one had time for clothing at the time. I mean, it was initially, it was like, how do we make the boards as good as they can be? And, you know, there were certainly people doing cool emerging clothing brands, you know, like Twist, Mm -hmm. but that happened just a little, a little bit later. Late mm-hmm. 80s, I really feel like the main focus was on um, was on getting hard goods figured out. And then soft goods came on really strong, you know, a little later. It's, it's the development of a sport and then an industry that follows the sport, you know. So yeah. um, but when when you were starting to ride pro then, because, you know, the focus is probably so much more on the gear, but you're still being filmed, photographed. Um you know, what was your, I'm, I'm not going to get into hard goods. I'm going to go into apparel because that's your history, your, your, your uh, pathway. You know, what was your choice of gear? When did you start to really pay attention to the apparel that you were wearing? And what were your thoughts about, you know, what you were using at that time in the nineties? Well, as a, as a young broke kid, you know, it was like, I was getting my stuff that was issued to me You know, I'd pick colorways and stuff from Burton, but I was taking my Burton stuff. And then later on, I was partnered up with the the team at spider. That was like most brands in the early nineties, trying to figure out snowboarding. It's really hard when you're a ski brand. And so yes. and it wasn't until I was sort of a little bit more on the inside because spider was in Boulder. I could come off the Hill and meet with the team and like provide feedback, but it was in that era um, where I'd sit down and you know, I basically would draw my jacket and pants and provide feedback. And mm-hmm. I think it was appreciated, but at the time it was like, we've got designers for that. And, it, and I've actually <laughs> been told that we've got designers for that. And it's like, oh boy, this is interesting. So mm-hmm. that's where the, um, it's not that he didn't appreciate the feedback, but it was like, when I started wanting to design in my later, late in my career, that's when we really sort of got the design. We've got designers for that. Yeah. But the early days of like spider and strike, they were uh, pretty receptive to at least functional feedback. And then I wasn't trying to move design lines around or provide new solutions for features. It was more just direct feedback on stuff that we were issued, you know? Yeah. And on a side note that, you know, outside of my focus here is um, thinking about, you know, I came into designing for the outdoor industry in about 2001 Um and I did not, I came out of fashion school and not from being a big, you know, snow sports user. I started working with Columbia Sportswear and started working on their snow sports. Um, and by then it was already, I really remember people talking about, especially when I went to the North Face a few years later, um, being a user, you know, mm-hmm. they're not a user, you know, or they're just a designer. They're not a user. And it kind of feels a little bit the opposite of what you're talking about is, okay, I'm a user. I have some ideas. Yeah. And they're yeah. saying we have designers for that. <laughs> well, there was one, I just, I'm referencing one example for what it's worth. Yeah. Like certainly all the brands came at it differently. And in my career, we've highly valued, you know, athlete feedback, years of working with Chris Davenport and and these other athletes, you know, that were providing real world feedback that was really, yeah. really interesting. If you work at Spider, you know, you, you're Solomon, you're very often, you're a user, not everyone's a user, a lot of the design team are. So we had our own thoughts on things. But you know, if you're doing a custom collection for somebody, and they've, they've got ideas, and whether they're aesthetic or functional, it's amazing to have that resource. Yeah, well, you being a user from the get go, already informs that knowledge for you of how valuable that is. 
Yeah, that's know. true. I do respect it maybe differently than someone who isn't an end user yeah. at this level. Yeah, come to the true. table with that. So I want to talk about that next piece. Okay, so how long were you pro? Do you remember? I re- yeah, I wrote the pro tour until 98. Yeah. So, and then what started to happen for you then? Well, like- I was like, I was, I was, I didn't want to be the old guy at the club. You know, I always say this, like I knew I'd, I knew that something was going to have to change by 96, 97. I went back in because the Olympics were coming. I, I tried to stop earlier mm-hmm. and, and got back in for the Olympics and wound up having a couple of epic seasons. And that was awesome. Nice. But in this, in the first of those last two seasons is when I bought my sewing machine and started recognizing that I had this splinter in my mind as as uh, morpheus would say that <laughs> that just wouldn't like i kept sitting down and drawing i was always drawing and when i was drawing i was always drawing the clothes and when i was drawing the clothes the clothes were on a character and the character was in a scene and mm-hmm. it was like okay what's going on here um and in fact i even started curating tear sheets before I even knew what a tear sheet was, I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I tearing images out of magazines and setting them aside just because I like them? I had no idea what I was doing. I, you, I yeah, go ahead. Just doing it. I was just curating. And and then and then it 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 hit me. I'm like, oh, this is so obvious. I'm supposed to be an apparel designer, you know. This episode was brought to you by the Functional Fabric Fair powered by Performance Days, the premier trade show for performance fabrics and materials. Since 2018, the Functional Fabric Fair has been providing a unique, highly curated trade show experience in the performance materials space, aimed at providing customers with the very best options to create the highest level products in the market. Having a strong focus on education and sustainability, The Functional Fabric Fair is committed to tackling the biggest issues we face today in regards to product manufacturing in our environment. With five shows throughout the year from Portland to New York City to Munich, you're sure to find what you need at the Functional Fabric Fair and Performance Days. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm really intrigued by that, you know, like... um, I mean, that that transition of knowing, because this is a place where, um, you know, as I had talked about this, part of the focus of our episode here is having to change careers, right? Like uh, career changing, and we have to reinvent ourselves many times through our lifetime. We don't necessarily know that when we're younger. We start to see it when we're older and, yeah. and we we see the pathways that we've we've made. But to know when a career is starting to kind of wind down or that you want to shift, you know, that you want something different. It's more than that. Um, And when, to know that when you're that young as well is not necessarily something a lot of people can do. Um, But I guess you're also in a young sport, right? Like a, a, a youthful sport, like you said, you're seeing the younger people coming up, you're getting older and you're not necessarily seeing that you're going to continue i'm I'm kind of wanting to dig into that and go um you notice that you're making tear sheets and you're and you're drawing and you clearly have an affinity towards a look and a sketch and ideas how does that bridge over into buying a sewing machine when you don't even know how to sew and sewing for guys isn't a big thing right Mm-hmm, Obviously, right, yeah. you're not hung up on that, but um, it 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 wasn't back then. 
So how does that happen? I, I, I want to dig in a little bit more. Like, what do you think for you? Well, nothing's going to happen if I don't do something. Like, I mean, it's the most basic thing, right? But like, I can sit around thinking about it or I can, or I can go buy a sewing machine. You know, like I was drawing, I didn't know anything about pattern making. I'm a pro snowboarder. It's all I'd ever done. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd done some work with, with brands, like in between the, the two snowboarding eras, I mm-hmm. took some time off and was a sales rep, which actually really mattered later when I was on the looking at a room full of sales reps, but we can yeah. talk about that later. But like, it was during that period of like, okay, I, I like this, but I don't want to do this forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sales rep thing where I was like, that's where I started to really think about what was going to matter to me, what was going mm-hmm. to be authentic to me and what I, what I cared about. Side note, I'd already met Shannon, my wife. And mm-hmm. like, I was like, okay, I don't want to be away from her all the time. I want to be, I want, and I want to do something meaningful. And at the time it was probably a little bit hung up on being visible and being like the next Ralph Lauren or something, but, but that happened a little bit later. It was more just that I felt this and I wanted to act on it. And, um, just like, just like snowboarding. Like I, I felt like I could, I could do it. So I just started, started doing it. Yeah. And I think um, there's a thing about when you have a positive experience doing something, you tend to then build on that without no, realizing it maybe and, and, and creating other positive experiences. So you had a positive experience in, in falling in love with snowboarding trying it, doing it, having some success, going pro, like it, and it, it creates um, a pattern within us, you know, and probably within you to, okay, sure. Try something new. Let's take some chances. Yeah. yeah. And because you already have a belief that taking those chances can work out and they can work out pretty good. Yeah, that's true. And that's definitely, I'm, I'm wired up that way. It's yeah. a little, I don't know. I was going to say it's easier when you're younger. I don't know if it is. I think there are things about it that are extremely hard when you're young, you know, mm-hmm. when, when, you know, when you're trying to manage what little money you have and what little time you have, you know, for me, it was a big period of, of change and, um, and, and certainly scary and certainly with some stress, but, you know, here I was, I, I didn't really party very much. I wasn't a gamer you know, you ride the half pipe for four hours and come home and it's like, okay, what now? So I had this, I had the benefit of having a job snowboarding mm-hmm. and a bunch of free time. And so that's when I was initially starting to sew and it was great. My, my uh, buddies, roommates were really supportive. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, I want to ask you. Um, nice sewing machine. Um, <laughs> I was going to no, ask you, what type did you buy? No, we what? still have a good laugh about it to this day. Cause he, cause you know, my oldest friends from that era are like, Holy moly, man, you really made this work. I'm like, yeah, it seems yeah. to be working. Yeah. Um, I bought a Janome uh-huh. in, uh, in, in Charleston, West Virginia. My wife was getting, Shannon was getting her master's up at WVU and I found a sewing machine shop and I bought it and I showed up in her dorm and I was like, what do you think? So, um, and then I proceeded to leave for Colorado for a few months. So yeah, so it was a, it was a really a period of like this, a bit like snowboarding where it's like, okay, if I'm, if this is my little world where I can be successful, then I need to make it work. I need to work hard. And and so it was the same thing with the sewing machine. It's like, I didn't know anything, but I was going to learn, you know, I had to make it, I had to make it matter. Yeah. What did she think about that? Well, she thought it was a little crazy, but she knew, she knew that I loved this topic, you know, and that I was really taken by the fashion. And this was fashion at the time that I really wanted to do. I didn't really particularly want to go back into ski. I was trying to get out of ski and snowboard um, because quite frankly, I felt 
I wasn't in ski, sorry. I was only in snowboard. Mm -hmm. And in snowboard, because of some of my maybe uh, buttoned up tendencies, I was maybe a little bit of a, an, not an outcast, but I always felt a little bit on the outside of snowboarding too. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it the way a lot of other people did it. And I've got my, I've got highs and lows on that for what it's worth. But so I was feeling like, okay, not only am I aging out of this, but it's maybe not, again, not my most natural thing. Mm -hmm. I happen to be good at it, but culturally, am I one of the insiders? No. And so it was like, okay, what's, what's the next thing? Like, it's been great to me forever and ever. Thank you. But like, what now? And so, so now I had to make the, the design thing work. And so in that design phase, how much at that point in time did you already know about fashion, Ralph Lauren, any of the brands? What did, what was your um, exposure? Well, it's occurring to me now that I should be forever grateful to print because, you know, I didn't go to school in England or Italy for this. So I right back to the BMX magazines. All I had was, uh, you know, a stop at Barnes and Noble when I was on the road as a tech rep. Yeah. And so, you know, the various high level $20 fashion mags that showed all the collections way before the internet. Mm-hmm. Like that was my intro. So I was looking closely at Jill Sander and Armani, yeah. uh, certainly. And, but Ralph, you know, we can talk about Ralph in all day. He was the master of the dream more than more really in a way that was different than the other brands. Mm-hmm. Some of those other brands had um, masterful uh uh, adherence to design language. Um, these were not words I was using in 97, <laughs> but, 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 but I, so I understood if you asked me describe Armani in five words, I could do it. Uh, and, but Ralph, Ralph had really mastered, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the dream, uh, the portrayal of the dream in a way that the other brands just didn't have quite as much texture, you know, the storytelling, you know, they and were so masters you know, line and sinker, you know, I yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. He was he's always been a master of storyteller. I mean, you'd walk into any of his shops at any point in time and you know exactly where you are. You know where you are. Yeah. No one has to tell you when you're in a Ralph Lauren store. Yeah. I think there's elements of his work that still um he wasn't one of my absolute favorite designers. I, I was more of a modern. I, I love Jill Sander back at the, in, in the nineties. I, I was going super modern, super futuristic. Um and um but you know, and he'd been around a long time. I'd been very into fashion since the early eighties as a young girl. Yeah. And so I was always very aware of him, but whenever, as soon as I started designing and doing more lifestyle work, um, I started to really come to love his work and, and appreciate the materials, you know, like for me, I think a lot of like the natural leathers, the, the wood, the gray wool, the, you know, just that kind of look, you can yeah. still see it in my life and in, in my home um, because he was so masterful with apparel, with home, with lifestyle, with everything, the horses, uh, you know, every, every little piece, you can just feel all the textures, you know, and they're very luxurious and very nurturing. I think totally. of him as a nurturing, a nurturing brand in that sense. Yeah. yeah, that's true. It was. And I, my more modern tendencies had always been there because of childhood references that I didn't know were references yet. Yeah. Um, right. But, uh, but, you know, like my whole life, nothing, nothing has informed my life more than a, a late seventies Porsche 911, but I didn't know how much it impacted me until, until much later in life. That's what I wanted to kind of, before we dig into the design aspect of it, um, 
because a lot of we, us as designers, we find that we're really passionate about certain things in our lives and we don't know why, but we find out later it's because they were really well designed mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in, in inside and out. Yeah. Um, and you're really into, um, you know, clothing but yeah, and, and fashion, but you're really into cars and um and maybe maybe more than that. I don't know if you're into bikes and, and stuff as well. A little a little bit, but the cars have been, you know, for 40 years as a well, for, for 20 years as a dream, and then the 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 next 20 years as an owner. Yeah. So it's been I've just been fortunate to have those opportunities to know what I wanted and to buy them and keep, you know, sort of flipping and trading and all that stuff. So not well, how did that start? That started that started um, when you were young. It started uh, again back to print. I'm in Banner Elk, and there was like this, you know, big, being a resort town. There was yeah. one person in town who we knew had a Porsche, but it, but, but I hadn't really noticed it until I saw it in like a Road and Track magazine, and really started to understand that the the 911, the you know, the classic sort of round, yeah. bug eye, a frog eyed Porsche, um, it was something that mattered to me. Like a red Ferrari did not do it for me. A you know, a black or a silver uh, or a white. 911 was my that was the thing that that struck a chord for me it was just that's what and then finally there was one sitting there in Banner Elk a black one with a tail with a whale tail that I I got to just actually walk around and stare at and it was just like you know take just hear these things in my head going ting 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 like like just hammering in lifelong uh love you know just no going back just and this, like this is a time when none of us have phones and and there's no such like digital cameras to take pictures yeah. of anything. So it's yeah. what you it's what you remember or yeah. experience. And you see yeah, in magazines I couldn't take home like I you know they were at the library at the at the local college. My my mom in a legendary stroke must have sent away, you know, by mail to get the, uh, to get the 19 I guess it was 8911 SC catalog from Porsche and I, wow. I still have this mint nice eleven catalog so whenever I wanted to see one I could see one, you know, it was great. Great parents. Yeah, very master supportive. stroke. I don't know. <laughs> that was that really means, That means yeah. everything, you know. So yeah. what else, what else with that? Like when you would talk about like, um, because these things that, that, you know, the things that you've worked on, which we'll dig into a little bit more and um, the cars, the racing, um, there's um, a nice blend of beauty in the design and functionality, performance, you yeah. know, and um, luxury. Yeah. <laughs> what what else would you package in there as something another is there any other passions that kind of sit in there with those for you I mean those I think you nailed them I mean and and just not to belabor the the 911 point but think about it this was a a it was european so it was exotic to me like yeah. you know it's this european thing it wins races so the capability there you mentioned functionality the capability is there it, uh, it's you know there's in there's this beauty to it that was like from happened to strike a chord for me other people like a you know a flat italian ferrari or lamborghini i like the 911 mm-hmm. and then yeah there's like back to that sort of it it wasn't luxury in the classical sense it wasn't a rolls royce but it was beautifully designed and finished and yeah you felt like you could show up at a at a you know a hotel in San Moritz or run it down to the grocery store like it just had this versatility about yeah. it that um you know and again I wasn't thinking this way as a 10 year old but this stuff was it 
but Porsche got me like they got their hooks in me as a brand because of all those things. And, and it's just, and I pay close attention to things like that now in my work, because it's like, why did they get me? Well, how did Oakley get me as a, as a 13 year old, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't have whatever they were $75 for sunglasses in 1985. Um, But I, but I, scraped up and found a way to buy Oakley's, you know, and I, I liked their grips better than anybody else. These brands just found a way to get into my head and stay there. And I'm, I'm really taken by that. And they come back forever and inform the work you do. Yeah, they do forever. I mean, I, I can see it in the work that you've done. I know, I know, um, yeah, your work from spider. I know your work from triple odd design. Um, and it's for all of us that that's where we come from. That's, that's what makes us tick. And that's where our creativity, how it comes out. Do you have any specific things um, when it comes to, especially like the nine eleven and the colors that you love and the details that, you know, have really infiltrated into, you know, the, the ski wear and the outdoor gear that you have built? Well, it's a little, there's an inherent sort of taste level, as I would say, which, which sounds like terribly pompous kind of like thing, but it's, it's really what I'm talking about. Like people have different taste levels, designers do, customers do. So I have kind of a fundamental baseline of like wanting the things I am associated with to meet the criteria that most of the criteria that I just outlined for the port for the 9-11, you know, but when I'm working with different brands, like I feel like i I, I learned so much at Ralph, you know, at, at Polo, I didn't go to school. I went to school at, at Ralph Lauren for six years, you know, and, and that's, people say that he has said that it's, it's a fact. Um, and so that design language, even though I was doing uh, RLX, you know, where it wasn't all the things you outlined so eloquently earlier, you know, we did gray flannel, we did leather, but really that was punctuation for a runway. Um, RLX was all about, te- you know, building authentic technical product and coming from Solomon, they hired me because they knew I knew technical product, right. but I still, you know, so we were referencing Ralph's car collection. You know, if we did a, a yellow and black collections because of his yeah. yellow and black, you know, Ferrari 360. So it was that design language was, I knew what it was going in and yeah. we had tremendous fun for years doing it. Yeah. yeah. Spider shifting gears a little bit that was a different a different world i had grown Mm -hmm. up aspiring to have spider i couldn't afford it growing up i found a way to get a few pieces here and there and then wrote for them later so i kind of knew it but coming in now 10 years later as the head of product you know it's all of a sudden it's really my baby and so god the pressure now having been like a friend of the family all of a sudden it's my baby that was gnarly um (laughs) but I respected the heritage, you know, and we, we had an opportunity to really reinvent it. Um, And those, you know, the race car references the the color and the color blocking it's, you know, it's not for everybody, but I knew who it was for and I knew how to level it up. And I had an amazing team and we, we, we had an amazing run at it. Yeah. And even though the nine 11 stuff, for example, doesn't play back into spider the way it might play back into polo, the proportion and the finishing and the details and the experience with touch points and all that absolutely, absolutely applied. Yeah. 
And you're getting to, with all of these, you're getting to design to high price points. I mean, you know, when I was coming in, in the, in the early two thousands doing ski wear, it's like, that was how I was learning about ski wear. I was looking at spider. I was looking at RLX all through that, that period of time, of course, wanting to do that at that level. And the brands that I was working for did not work ski wear and, you know, at that level. Um, And so we were pulling inspiration you know, from that, but, but it's also the, um, when you were talking about, you know, a a taste level and there is absolutely something about, um, it's not pompous. I mean, some people might think about, you know, we buy a brand because we want a certain kind of, um, um, what is it? Identity. We want to be identified with that brand. Right. Yeah. It's different when you're coming in. Like I didn't grow up with a lot of that. And so I had to become exposed to it to see what was really nice, you know, be exposed to nice materials, be exposed to great design. And the more you're exposed to it and you see how beautiful and wonderful and the craftsmanship or the, you know, sure, some things are just higher price points, but their materials are nicer. The the details are nicer. Um, You fall in love with that. And once you get exposed, it's just like being exposed to really nice wine or really good cheese or just really nice food or anything in life. Um, It's hard to go back to where maybe you came from. And so your taste level changes because you get exposed to the possibilities that are out there. Um, And and then as a creative, you want to make the coolest possible shit that you can, right? You know, and so you're like, well, of course I want to work with you know, this wool and this really high level three layer fabric. And I want to build these amazing, we had, uh, you know, I was working on um, trying to relaunch the old brand Rafi, which Columbia had bought. And we were going to relaunch it as a women's fashion ski wear brand. It did not go through, that never happened, but um, we worked on it and Mm -hmm. uh, worked on it in conjunction with Nordstrom. But I was looking at, you know, really nice, uh, um, silver pulls with bamboo inlay and that type of thing, like the dreams that, you know, you, you, you push your levels up. Um, and so when you work with brands like that, you get exposed to higher levels and then you get to bring that to the next place you go. So I can see that, you know, your experience of, of, of working with Solomon and at that time, Ralph Lauren's RLX line, um, you know, trying to, be really relevant as a sport line, they need the technical. And going to Spider, you get to bring also the technical and the fashion side, you know, and so you bring that piece to both of those companies over time. Yeah, it was, they were amazing experiences. And w- like most things, you know, Ralph does a bunch of runway, but the, you know, a lot of the businesses in uh, entry price point stuff, which is mm-hmm. great because like, I don't, uh, you know, it's not about, um, exclusion like you know what i mean like getting to work right. with the big brands and and have kind of carte blanche like we did at, at polo was fun it was certainly fun for a designer but it it also matters to me more than ever that that that, that, that we build not just the stuff we wanted to make but stuff that that people are drawn to and that they actually then buy and that they then keep for a long time right um, because we know about the challenges with, with our business. And and so for me, it wasn't about building the most expensive or the most of anything. It mm-hmm. was building things that people would like cherish. Yes. And uh, that's what I feel most yeah. easily most fortunate about in my work. Yeah. And to me, the most sustainable business model, or at least it starts there. 
It should. It should start with quality. I mean, that was the running joke with Spider was that we were like, you know, we'd see these guys in the mountain like that jacket's from 1992. You know, it's 2012. And we would see these things. We're like, how do we get that guy into a new jacket? But his, (laughs) you know, his jacket was made 40 years ago with Japanese materials that Dave Jacobs paid, you know, to to invest in his product. He wanted to make the best stuff. And, and the stuff was, there it is, 40 years later, and that, that person still loved it. I mean, well, in that cycle, 40 years later, are. it's cool again. It's- well, <laughs> yeah, we did start to reference some of the big eagle, you know, USA stuff at one point. But it's just the, 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 the fact is, you know, if you, my shoulder, uh, Solomon stuff, the, some of those prototypes, my dad was wearing one the other day from 2000. And that yeah. shoulder, those shoulder goods look as good as they did the day that product, you know, hit the market. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, Harris Tweed, too, where we're sort of where it all started for me, really, if I look, you know, tick back again, my dad was this kind of had kind of a sad upbringing in Boston and goes through ROTC in high school and shows up, gets recruited to Bowdoin College to swim. And he shows up there with like his crappy state issued blazer and he's looking around going, yeah, I need a, I need a new blazer. And he goes and buys his Harris tweed jacket with probably every cent he had. Mm. And so for me, for 40 years, the first time I, I'm 52, the first time I heard that story, I thought, okay, file that away. Harris tweed is good. Yeah. And now, you know, now here I am like Harris tweed is still my, one of my favorite mills, you know, yeah. all, all time. That's a shocker. Yeah. Big, big profound statement. <laughs> Anyone who knows Harris Street is like, wow, cool. Congratulations, you and everybody. But, <laughs> but, but it's like, it's but true. oh my God. And those materials look as good. Um, the odd, the odd moth hole aside, um, the, the, his, his Harris Tweed stuff looks outstanding today. I mean, yeah. and so that's, that's not luxury or hype. That's just quality and okay. Right. Uh, it's not, maybe not everyone can, can always have it, but like, if you're going to do something, that's, that's the way I want to do it. I don't really do, I, I'm kind of repelled by, by mm-hmm. things that are overpriced because of hype. And I understand it. And maybe I'm being a tight ass, but like, I feel like you should build things that are, that are, are representative of their price tag. Yeah, absolutely. Or vice versa. Maybe it's yeah. vice versa. Yeah. Quality and craftsmanship. I think, you know, the the age that we grew up in with the industrialization, um, just that, you know, things got very, very cheap. So there could be a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And we're, right, we're yeah. finally starting to move away from that because we've seen what it's done to our environment, um, to our lives and whatnot. And yeah. um, I'm thankful for that. You know, that, that the idea of fewer, better things, that we spend a little bit more for the things that we really love, that we're going to keep. You know, it's why I have more Pendleton wool blankets on my bed than any, any polyester, you know, yeah, target ones. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I know what you mean. And it's, and it's hard, right? Because we know that not everyone can make that choice, but I also, I do believe too, that a lot of people don't know that that is a choice. Exactly. I, I, education is massively lacking in terms of like, um, mm-hmm. you know, helping share that some of those, uh, you know, they're, they came long before Yvonne, but that idea of buying fewer things better, I think, is uh, is, is just not being not being not being yeah. broadcast adequately. Yeah, it's the exposure, you know, and getting more of that out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and luckily, I think we're seeing more. We've been seeing more of that through more design choices, like you know, better design at places like Target and whatnot have helped. Um, it's not necessarily the best, you know, the best 
always the best stuff. But as soon as you start making things a little bit nicer and people start wanting nicer things, and we just need to make them last. You well, know? and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I mentioned Target. I mean to dig on Target on the blanket a minute ago. Target's actually one of the, is doing, you're right, in women's wear, for example, really mm-hmm. some really great looking stuff. And uh, that t-shirt will last 20 years if you want it to. Right. And if you take care of it, the punchline is, if someone's telling you that t-shirt isn't cool anymore, that's really the problem. Like if you got rid of it long before it's the end of its serviceable life, because somebody said it wasn't a cool t-shirt, that's where we open up a whole fashion Pandora's box here that, you know, as a higher design director, I should probably be careful uh, being too hard on, but we, (laughs) we, we know why the landfill looks the way it looks. Let's be honest. Yeah, absolutely. It's oh. it's the remarketing of new stuff and encouraging people to keep yeah. buying yeah. cheap new things. Also, yeah. the awareness, I think, of where things are made, who's making them, how much they're, you know, costing to make. Um, yeah. You're going to buy a two ninety nine tank tank top. Right. From, I know. I know. You know I know. Nobody, nobody was paid well enough to make that thing happen. So... That is true. And and like I said, this is a huge topic because like, how do you make sure that people who need clothes, firsthand clothes, you know, that where they want to live their life like the rest of us have access to things that are affordable and nice, um, nice enough to portray their themselves in the world the way they want to and dream to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm close to this because I grew up very modestly, you know, I've become a bit of a snob, but I wasn't born one. So I'm like, so I'm acutely aware, acutely aware of, of seeing things that I wanted and couldn't have. And I think that's another thing where I'm like, I just know I'm not as cool as these other kids because, you know, I'm, I'm first generation uh, Nike too. Think about it. Like you, you and me both like eight years old. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's obvious that those sneakers are cooler than mine. And I'm feeling a little bit less than because of it. And that's, that's the first time I started to realize it's like, Oh, this is, this matters, you know? Yeah. Little yeah. eight-year-old punk with my shoes from the PX. Yeah, yeah, postal exchange on on base. You know, like, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with my sneakers, but as soon as I realized there was something better out there, it really hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that other awareness. You become aware of what you don't in that comparison. Yeah, it and that and that. If we want to dig in, I mean, if you don't think that impacted my desire to like oh, be, be somehow do something cooler, yeah, um, it certainly it certainly did. You have been listening to Unstructured, the podcast from Structure Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please download, share, like, subscribe, and add your thoughts and suggestions in the comments. Also, please consider a Substack paid subscription to help us bring even more meaningful content and connection points to you and our creator community. Here, you'll find articles and news, as well as the podcast and additional content. We cannot grow without you. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.